Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, posted on April 7th, 2010. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, we'll talk about what scientists need to know about presenting and explaining their own research with communications consultant and writer Dennis Meredith. But first, let's talk about love. Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Marriott DeCristina did just that last month at the 92nd Street Wise Tribeca site here in New York City, along with psychology researcher Robert Epstein, who is a contributing editor to Scientific American Mind magazine. He was the author of the article Fall in Love and Stay That Way in the January-February issue of Mind. Here are Marriott and Robert at the event last month here in New York. How many poems have probably been written to love, odes to love, you know, she walks in beauty, all these, and I, I have a book actually, I meant to bring it with me tonight just because I thought it was very entertaining, um, that there's fat stacks of tributes to the idea of love. And obviously our culture values this super highly, and yet in many ways, in so many ways, we leave all this love to chance. Um, and the, the fact is, you know, although we value it highly, highly and it is a mutual attraction is an entree into a long and lasting commitment, we don't seem to have the tools that it takes to continue on with that commitment. So let me talk a little bit about that and what some of the things are, the, some of the reasons why, you know, love is actually good for you, things that we've found out and, and ways that we, through Robert's uh, research and others, can improve our techniques for maintaining that commitment and love over time. So love, right, just said it's not only fun, has some practical benefits, um, this is research that you could, if, if you, if you read Scientific American Mind, and I maybe, maybe after this evening you'll take a look at it. Um, this is some of the work that we've covered. Um, love, people who are in love, uh, you know, tend to be more creative because the feeling of love induces a long-term perspective that makes people, that activates global processing centers rather than short-term perspective. Um, that's where the sex comes in. <laughs> you know, that, that's a, uh, kind of brings up analytic thinking and rather short-term goals. People who are in love experience less pain. There was a study not long ago, women who are holding the hand of a partner who are, um, who are, who they're known to them or compared with, uh, or looking pictures of people who they know and love experience less the temperature sensitivity. They would apply a, a warm temperature to them in a research study. So they, it, it makes you feel better in that sense. And uh, long-term people who have been in long-term relationships through imaging studies and so on, we've found that, you know, there's increased activity in pleasure centers of the brain. So love over time makes you feel better. So all this stuff is really great, but can be a little elusive for us. And, and frankly, practice does not make perfect here. You know, one and one in two marriages, first marriages end in divorce in our country, two out of three second marriages, and three out of four third. So... What is it about love that we want it so badly? We write poems about it. It's good for us in so many ways, but we seem to have trouble building it. Well, this is where hopefully science comes in. Why why uh, love can fail and confuse attraction with love. I remember uh, the neighbor across the street from me always lecturing me on the difference between infatuation and, and true love. And he and his wife certainly seem to have it. And to this day, they're married, I think, 46, 47 years at this point. So but many of us, I think, we confuse that initial first flush of attraction with the long-term bonding that is love. We may have unrealistic expectations, and we don't have the skills, and this is where um, tonight's talk comes into play. So we leave love to chance, which science shows us we don't have to. There are some key components, which we'll dive into. The first one, commitment. I want to uh, tell you uh, just a quick story. 
I, I've been married 20 years. It'll be 21 in September. And a lot of the things that we're going to talk about tonight, I kind of bumbled into and got lucky. And I'm, I'm glad now because the next 20 years, I hope, will be smooth sailing. But when I was first married and we went uh, on our honeymoon, we met two couples, one married to about 22 years and the other married about tw- uh, 33 years. And and my husband and I uh, asked them, what do you do? What, what makes you so successful? And um, one guy leaned over. He said, there are going to be times in the next thing. He said, right now you can't picture it, but there are going to be times in the coming years when everything he does makes you crazy, when you can't even stand the sound of his, when he eats the cereal. And that's when you have to remember something extremely important. You're stuck. <laughs> I, and I started laughing because, you know, that's my natural reality. And the guy says, no, I'm not kidding. You really have to think of it that way. You're stuck. So anyway, just to the commitment point, you have to obviously communicate, be accommodating to your partner. And very interestingly, you have to learn ways to be vulnerable. There are more than 80 scientific studies that examined what keeps uh, couples together over time. And I'm going to just really quickly sweep through 10 areas uh, supported by that research, and then I, we'll talk to Robert a little bit about, about it. So first, um, one, one area that brings people together is some kind of arousal, right? So you go on a roller coaster ride with somebody, uh, you feel really close after that, or maybe exercising, feel a little sexy. Um, this, this, these things help. <laughs> so any kind of, you know, activity, the things that go to scary movie, right? How, how many times has this happened? Somebody puts their arm around proximity and familiarity. So you around somebody, you habituate to them, you're with them. If you consciously do so, make efforts to do so, that will also help you build closeness. Similarity. So opposite people attract. You're dangerous and sexy, I'm serious and not. Uh, but we tend to pair off with people who are like us. You know, they're similar in background, they're similar in intelligence and in interests and in common interests. And um, that, that also helps. Humor. Humor is huge. Uh, when we first uh, fall in love, humor, you know, we laugh a lot. Uh, humor attracts us, but jokes that partners make mutually help them stay together over time. And I know this is certainly true in my, my own marriage. My husband and I have this whole series of code word things that we say that we both find amusing. Nobody else has any idea what we're talking about. Novelty, they're doing something new together. So you're building a new experience, um, helps build closeness. Lowering inhibitions, likewise. If you are kind, you accommodate your partner and you forgive, these things also help build closeness. Naturally, um, frequent touch and sexuality. People who share secrets get together better. And that's always a fun thing to do, I think. The key there is allowing yourself in certain ways to feel vulnerable with your partner helps build that closeness. And Robert? Now, I, I wanted to follow up on something, your studies with other cultures. Now, in the U.S., very keen on romantic love, or at least, you know, the, the feeling that before we make that kind of commitment. But in other cultures, some other cultures, they make the commitment and then grow in love over time. And what, what can we learn about that? Well, the main thing we can learn is that it's possible. That is, we, that it's possible to get together with someone with whom you're actually suitable, which is something, a term we don't even think about anymore in our culture, but you can actually get together with someone you're suitable to be with for the rest of your life. And then build love over time. And in India, there's actually an expression which is first comes marriage, then comes love. And, and <laughs> yeah, and I've been, I've been interviewing people, uh, from, from different uh, cultures yeah. around the world, including India, where 
that happens. And I even went to India and interviewed couples there, I mean, who were in uh, very successful arranged marriages in which love grew stronger over time. And so that's what I've been trying to understand more and more over the years is how they do this, how they can be, in some cases, deliberate about building love. And there's even a study published in India, but using an American love scale called the Rubin Love Scale, that compared love in uh, in love marriages in India, because they have those too, to love in arranged marriages. And in this particular study, love in the love marriages starts out very high, just like ours, our love does. And then over time, it decreases. That's what all of our studies show, it tends to decrease over time. Uh, and in the arranged marriages, and this is true in my work too, we see the love starting out relatively low because in some cases people barely know each other. Sometimes they've had, you know, a half an hour of contact in total before they got married. And then it increases gradually, uh, surpasses the love in the love marriages at about five years, and ten years out, it's twice as strong. How does that work? That's what I've been working on now for about five, six years. I completed one study last year. I have a new one going now that's really interesting. You can't, yeah, I suppose you can't, can't tell us uh, about that yet. No, I, I, I'm looking at, in both studies, I'm looking at factors that people in those marriages say contributed to the growth of love. And very often they're reporting things like, well, he was injured and I took care of him and I felt more in love. I was injured or I, I got ill. He took care of me. Uh, there was something terrible that happened and, you know, we shared the experience. And and I, I get people to kind of come up with recollections and now I have them rating things on scales. And uh, almost always that's what they're telling me is there was a situation in which he was vulnerable or I was vulnerable and love grew. Not every situation, but most of the ones they describe are of that sort. And in both studies the most important factor turns out to be commitment. And I've, what I've realized is that commitment is the ultimate expression of vulnerability. Hmm. For better or worse, what, what greater kind of vulnerability could you possibly be expressing? How, how do you get to be comfortable being vulnerable? Well, by definition, especially in our culture, being vulnerable is uncomfortable. And I find that even I, uh, you know, knowing what I know academically about these things, even I, I don't want to be vulnerable. I kind of put it off. And then I have to remind myself how beneficial it is, how much I would get out of that, out of being closer, not being right necessarily, but being closer to my wife or closer to my children or closer to my, my elderly parents. And all I can say is the benefits are there. There is risk. And that's the downside because there is risk. If you are vulnerable to someone and that someone turns out to be a, a PUA, as they say in New York, pickup artist, <laughs> uh, you know, you, you could be hurt, right? So there's, there is risks associated with being vulnerable, but, uh, Again, that's where the suitability issue comes up. If you, if you are first use your head about who it is you're being vulnerable with, 
and then allow yourself to be vulnerable, chances are you'll define. I do it for your love. Robert Epstein's article, Fall in Love and Stay That Way, was in the January-slash-February issue of Scientific American Mind magazine and is available in digital form at SiamDigital.com. Dennis Meredith is one of the most respected science communicators in the country. He worked as a science press officer at Caltech, Cornell, and Duke Universities before semi-retiring to the life of a gentleman farmer. And he's the author of a new book aimed at scientists and their need to communicate their research to the public. We spoke when we were both at the meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science in February in San Diego. Dennis, against all odds, I hear you've written a book. Yes. It took three years of sitting in the basement of a cabin in the North Carolina mountains, and once my wife let me out, there was a book. And what's what's the book called, and what what is actually the content of this massive tome? <laughs> this massive tome. Well, it's called Explaining Research. And, and the idea is that scientists just do not understand how to reach out to lay audiences. They've not, they've not been trained to naturally. Uh, they don't have a natural cons- na- a lay level constituency. They're not trained during college uh, to reach out to lay audiences. So I wanted to give them all the tools that they needed to explain their research. Can you give me just, you know, the, the Letterman kind of top, we'll, we'll call it the top five list or even three. Mm-hmm. What, we have a scientists, a lot of graduate students who listen. What would be your major take-home points to them in in terms of reaching the public? Well, a, a lot of young a lot of young scientists have, have grown up with the internet. Now they know about websites, they know about blogs and and tweet, uh, Twitter and all that. But I don't think any of them have really thought about how they apply these new tools to advance their work, to to, to work to, to make their research. Uh, reach out, to reach out with, to, to audiences with their research. And so typically, for example, science websites, scientists' websites, uh, look like something that was thrown together uh, without any thought. And, and what I want to do is give them a sense of what they need to communicate on their websites and why it's important to all these audiences that they want to reach. So the website should just be a lot more user-friendly and lay user-friendly. Lay user-friendly, but they also need to keep those audiences in mind. What are donors uh, going to do when they come to their website? What are their colleagues going to? Uh, what they? What do they? What do they want their colleagues to know? What? Do, what do they want uh, future students in their lab to know? Uh, what do they want their grandmother to know? And so, if you think in that way, they, they think differently about their communication than than if than they have in the past. They don't think about audiences. And if you can't explain it to your grandmother, there's a good chance you really don't understand it that well. That's exactly what Einstein said. He said you don't understand anything until you can explain it to your grandmother. Now, that was his grandmother. His grandmother, right. yeah. Very bright woman. Yes, probably. So um, other than building a really friendly website, what, what should researchers be keeping in mind? Well, I want to give them a sense, for example, of uh, the uses of a news release. Uh, most scientists think, well, a news release goes out to the media, that's all it is, but there are six or eight diff- different uses of, of news releases as, uh, as historical documents, as communications to your administration, as communications to students. There are just all these uses for uh, news releases that are far beyond just to the media, and especially now that the media has basically collapsed 
science media has collapsed. So you need to understand what those uses are. And should we tell the dirty little secret to the to the listeners who may not know how the science communication world works in, uh, about press releases? The dirty little, you know which dirty little secret I mean? The one where they use news releases as prime sources now without actually going off, in some cases, without actually going off and doing their own reporting. Right. And so if you're, if a scientist, whether you're, young, you're a young scientist or a senior scientist, if you're doing a news release, you have to keep in mind that it may just show up verbatim and the quotes may show up verbatim. And so you need to explain it in a way that uh, that the media are going to read it. And, and also, importantly, news releases these days are listed on Google News right alongside the New York Times and the Washington Post and Associated Press. One of the major the major messages I have to scientists is that you are media now, and you have to accept both the responsibility and develop the talents to be media. It's a survival of the fittest situation and the media outreach is now part of your fitness. It is, really. And, and what stunned me is uh, there's, a, there's a recent survey that found that the major national media, that is the nightly news and the major national newspapers, devote only 2% of their coverage to science. And so this is an important gateway for, for a lot of the lay public to science. And if that gateway is closed, it's up to scientists now to, uh, to maintain that gateway, to keep it open. That's sort of the business part of this interview. Let's talk a little about... There's a fun part of this book that has to do with the way scientists perceive of themselves Mm -hmm. and the way scientists are actually portrayed in our entertainment. Why don't you talk about that? Well, a few years ago, I was sitting in a, in a, a meeting with a bunch of reporters, and this major scientist, this, this major uh, national laboratory director, stood up and started talking about scientists and how they're perceived. And, and he said, well, you know, they perceive scientists as being geeky or strange or mad or, or unattractive. And that, this, he's talking about the, the public. And this didn't sit well with me because I, I knew that that's simply not true. So I decided to go off and Check my facts. So I did a survey of 140 movies that depict scientists. Just pick, all, pick them out of databases without any, without any bias. And I judged rather, whether they were uh, depicting scientists as, portraying scientists as heroes or villains. And the ratio was six to one, heroes over villains. And even the villains were not really villainous. They were not evil. A lot of them just, uh, just uh, had too much ambition or their science got away from them. So the ratio is much higher. So my, my message is that scientists are heroes to Hollywood. What were some of the movies, do you recall? Oh, well, the, the, the most prominent one right now is Avatar. Uh, Grace Augustine, played by Sigourney Weaver, uh, has plays a major role in, in in this movie as a as a hero. Uh, one of the big mistakes a lot of people make is they keep saying that in Jurassic Park the scientists were villains. Well, if you look closely, the scientists were the heroes in Jurassic Park. The villain was a foolish entrepreneur, uh, and so they're just and and of course who would argue about Indiana Jones being a hero? And then there's Tony Stark, Iron Man. There's a new uh, Iron Man two coming out, and this guy is buff. He's an engineer. And he's he's a, a hero. And we have the CSI franchises. CSI, they're all scientists. They're all heroes. And, and uh, Numbers is a classic case. That's mathematicians being heroes. And they're just, uh, there are very few actual villains uh, in television that are scientists. Most of them are heroes. And, of course, the uh, the archetypal scientist hero in entertainment is 
the professor from Gilligan's Island. Absolutely. When they got in trouble, it was invariably the professor that got him out of trouble using some brilliant scheme that he hatched. And, and uh, he was really a main character and a very positive character in the island. And, and let's give... Uh a shout-out to Russell Johnson, I believe, is the actor's name. Russell Johnson. Good. Good well, man. I, I interviewed many years ago, and he was a, a lovely guy. Good man. And Good for man. a while there, he, there, there was a, a paucity of um, science scientist heroes uh, in TV, but then the, the CSI thing just really exploded. That and, that hit hard. That really hit the, the public conscious. And, and I think, well, it is true, however, that even before CSI, there were a lot of scientist heroes, but they were sort of in the background. For example, Law and Order has gone on for decades. And invariably, those detectives would go to see the forensic scientist, and that's where they'd get their clues, and then they'd go solve solve the crime. And that would be a short scene. We'd get two yeah, minutes with yeah, them, yeah. but now that's sort of been blown out into the the, the whole hour of CSI yeah. is, is the uh, the researchers. And we also have uh, Rick Moranis. Mm-hmm. Is he a hero, or is he kind of a, um, a variation on the absent-minded professor theme in the mm-hmm. in the I Shrunk the Kids franchise? Well, he he's a good example of a, a comic. Hero, what I call a comic hero. You know, you, you, people think, well, he was a, he was a joke. Uh, people made fun of him and so forth. But if you really watch the movie, first of all, he was very brilliant. He invented the machine that that shrunk the kids. Uh, he didn't. Sh- they didn't. They they were shrunk by accident. And the minute they were shrunk, he launched into action. And there's this classic scene of him hovering over the yard, uh, suspended from wires, looking for the kids. And eventually, he saved the kids. So my my message is that even when scientists are played as comic characters everybody likes them you like them they're sympathetic they're not played as foolish they're played as as sympathetic okay so what's the take-home message about the portrayal of scientists they're portrayed in a positive light okay so what do i do with that well what i want scientists to know is when they walk into a room whether they're testifying before Congress or talking to a civic group or, or debating uh, over global warming or trying to fight this nonsense about uh, children not being vaccinated, that when they go in there, they go in there with a credibility. And they go in there as heroes. They're natural heroes. People do respect them. And right now, too many of them have this inferiority complex. And I'm trying to convince them they should not feel that way. When they walk into the room, they have the respect of that audience. Well, that's it for this episode. For more about Dennis Meredith and his book, go to www.explainingresearch.com and get your science news at www.scientificamerican.com where you can read John Horgan's blog item called Can Brain Scans Help Us Understand Homer? That's the author of the Odyssey Homer, not the Bart Simpson's dad Homer. And follow us on Twitter where you'll get a tweet every time a new article hits our website. Our Twitter name is at Siam, S-C-I-A-M. For Science Talk, the podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. Love emerges